Ready for the word this morning? Good, because I'm ready to bring it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. This is uh, the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the people in Corinth. And this is what it says. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us. Very quickly, I want to unpack that verse very quickly before I get into my message. It is God who enables us, along with you. This is a team effort, people. It's by the presence and the power, the spirit of the living God, who's the grace of God, who gifts us and enables us to do things. But we have never been called to be lone wolves. We've never been called to, lone, to be the lone ranger. And uh, that's why the Apostle Paul said, it is God who enables us by his Holy Spirit along with you. Because actually for us to fulfill what God has got on our lives, it's a team effort. And um, I mean, I, 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 I need it. I need you guys. I need your prayers. I need your encouragement while I'm speaking. I need, I need extra hands. We need extra hands. So, I mean, Amber needs extra hands every time she runs Super Kids or we run the light party. Um, Amber needs extra hands as it is right now with the children's program. It's so successful that she needs to be able to, we want to build a team around her and under her. So if the Holy Spirit's been nudging you about the children's ministry, then Amber would love to take you out for a hot chocolate and just share her vision about the children's ministry with you. That would be amazing. So it's God who enables us along with you to do what? To stand firm for Christ because he's actually commissioned us to do this. There's a monumental tug of war uh, happening around us today. And the tension is this wrestle between the two forces of prominence and influence. The two forces of prominence and influence are in this monumental struggle. There is this ethos out there that says, if I can have more prominence, then I will have more influence. I will become more influential. But that belief is as flawed as the saying, practice makes perfect. No, practice makes permanent and it is only perfect if you practice perfectly. Anyone want to own up to being the perfect practicer? <laughs> Tiger Woods in his heyday when he was the world number one golf player, he was quoted as saying, I don't practice to get it right. I practice so I don't get it wrong. Pretty crazy statement, eh? You see, if there is one thing in this shifting world that will never be permanent, it is prominence. At any given moment, another celebrity, another fashion, another philosophy will rise to the top and hit the headlines and everything else will fade into ambiguity. But the Bible says, the Bible tells us that there is one who never changes. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, the beginning of verse 6, in the Old Testament, this is what it says. This is the prophet Malachi declaring what God says. I am the Lord, I do not change. Or you may be more familiar with what the, uh, what the writer to the Hebrew people wrote in chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's the thing. Jesus never once sought prominence, but there is absolutely no doubt about his influence. 
It's interesting uh, what the Holy Spirit put in to Susie's heart, that the song list that uh, God put into Steve's heart for this morning. Because actually, when we burn with the Holy Spirit, yeah, there's a scripture where the apostle Paul writes to his young apprentice, his name was Timothy, and it literally says, he writes to me, he says, fan into flame the gift that is within you. Personally, I want, to, I want to influence people towards Jesus, towards his salvation, his healing and his deliverance. And I hope by the end of this two-part mini-series, uh, that's right, you're only getting part one today. The end of this two-part mini-series that you too will be want, want to be someone of influence, whether you get recognized or not. So if you're taking notes this morning, or if you want a copy of my notes, they're out on the resource table. This message is called Our Purpose in a Shifting World. Let's pray. Father, Lord, in this moment, in this time, Lord, having sung that we need a fresh wind and a fresh fire in our lives, I'm asking that, Holy Spirit, you would come in the way exactly as you were described by Jesus himself. It says you are the spirit of truth and revelation. That you are the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. That you will convict the world of its sin, but also show us the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so as I deliver this this morning, I'm going to need all the help I can get. But I, Lord, I don't want my words to be the only thing that's heard. I want your anointing to be the powerful thing that brings revelation and truth to all of our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> it would seem today, um, I, I'm, I'm potentially going to get a little controversial this morning. Is that all right? Can I do that? I say because it's in my notes, so I'm going to follow them. Um, but it would seem today that one of the worst offenses a person can commit in public is to state something with certainty. To speak in absolutes that something is actually right or it's actually wrong. That someone has passed or someone has failed. And to be that sure about something is to literally go against the grain of tolerant culture. Which insists that any belief or idea, no matter how much it contradicts reality, it must be accepted. I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that had a picture of a watermelon and it said, this has been through the truth and fact checkers of Facebook and I would like to pre present to you a cucumber. See, tolerant culture will say whether you believe it or not, this is how it is and you must believe it. It doesn't really sound like tolerance, does it? In actual fact, those who scream tolerance the loudest are generally the most intolerant. And against that culture, against that global shift, Christians are called to stand firm in their defense of Christ and then in their defense of truth. It's gone very quiet. While we should not be unpleasant or rude in our manner or our conduct in this defense, we should still be gracious and yet shameless in clearly declaring that this is what the word of God says. The less the world believes in absolute truth, the more important it is for us to take an unwavering stand for what God has said. 
there are those who would tell us that to have influence, we must not state the truth with certainty. Well, I would like to suggest this morning that that's completely wrong. Because actually, the most influential person ever in time was Jesus. And he never wavered once on his certainty. So over the course of this week and next week, I'm going to, we've been, the scriptures have called us to stand firm. So I'm going to give you some standpoints. Okay, here's the first one for today. Standpoint number one, the message of absolute truth may not be popular, but it is still right and it is still important. Now, you know, the Apostle Paul, again, I don't have this scripture for the screen, but the Apostle Paul encourages us all. He says, be ready in season and out of season to give a reason or a defense for the hope that is in your life. But then he also goes on to say, but as you do it, do it with grace, do it with gentleness. Don't be what's commonly known as a Bible basher. Last week, Amber uh, spoke of three young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was an amazing message. If you weren't here last week and you haven't listened to it or watched it online, I absolutely, absolutely encourage you to do that. But she spoke, she, she unpacked the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood firm against bowing down and worshipping the image and the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, a man who essentially had set himself up as God. But here's the thing. Those three were actually three of a group of four young men who had been taken captive and kidnapped from Israel by the Babylonians. The fourth one in that group was Daniel. Let me read to you a little bit of the story out of Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. During the third year of King, Jehoiakim, his, King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over the king of King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. I find that quite fascinating. A heathen king was permitted by God to ransack Jerusalem and steal things out of the temple. Interesting. That's another message. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and judge good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal pal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. Now, picture this. Daniel was a prisoner of war. Both Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all prisoners of war. They were likely teenagers, young men in their, in their teens, middle to late teens, perhaps. They were enslaved by a people whose customs, values, worship, and faith were almost the exact opposite to their own. And then he was selected. These four young men were selected and they were trained in all manner of business, education, culture, and character of Babylon. He was given, Daniel was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. He would have had to dress as a Babylonian. He would have had to live as a Babylonian. And it is highly likely because of his training that he wasn't only trained in business, education, literature, and culture. He was highly likely trained in the faith and the rituals of that culture. 
So here is here are four young Hebrew men, Daniel, who became the leader of them, sold out for God, absolutely believing God, getting trained in and educated in one of the most demon-possessed heathen anti-gold cultures known on the face of the planet at the time. And yet, and yet, he still found a way to be the person God created him to be. That's just amazing. It's so inspiring. Even now, thousands of years later, we see the impact of a person of influence and the impact, pardon me, they, the impact they can have and exert. If we're to live with meaning and any sense of fulfillment in our lives here today, in the shifting culture of the world today, then we need to find our God-given purpose. We need to find God's will for our lives. And we are to do all we can to live fully for God and honor his call on our lives. You know, one of the wealthiest pieces of land in any town, village, or city is the cemetery. Because buried in that land are inventions not made, paintings not painted, music not composed, businesses not started, families that have uh, broken prematurely. Things, callings and gifts that God had put on people's lives had not had an opportunity to grow and flourish. We need to find what that call of God is on our lives individually so that we can fulfill everything that God has for us to do. You know, it's actually not arrogant or boastful to state, I have a God-given purpose. It's actually truth and it's biblically correct. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, one of my all-time favorite verses out of the Bible. I'm going to read it to you out of two different translations. The first one is the New Living Translation. It says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Now that same verse out of the Passion Translation says this, we have become his poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny he has given each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one. Even before we were born, God planned in advance our destiny and the good works we would do to fulfill it. You know, um, was it Rebecca or uh, Marianne up on the stage this morning said, God is good. A couple of us went, all the time. We missed the second half. All the time, God is good. You know, what, what God says is good. What God plans is good. The calling he has for you is good. The purpose he's made you for is good. If you read through the book of Psalms, King David unpacks it beautifully. Even before you were formed, God wrote the pages of your story. Even, before, even as you were being made, God was watching over you. The scriptures say you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Why? You weren't just fearfully and wonderfully made to sit on a blob like a, sit on a log like a blob croaking like a frog. I didn't practice that off too much, enough. But you weren't. You didn't come from some single cell piece of amoebic scum. You were made on purpose. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says you were knitted together. Anybody here do knitting? How many times did you go, ah, oh, and start again? My mum used to do that all the time. But the things that she used to knit and design took hours and concentration. God planned you. 
You know there is not a single person here this morning who is a mistake. Not one. God doesn't make mistakes. According to the word of God, he makes masterpieces. And in actual fact, if you unpack that a bit more, it means he has made you as a one of a kind, handcrafted, never to be repeated masterpiece. Valuable beyond measure. Made on purpose for a purpose by God. Just marinate in that and it'll change how you feel about yourself. Let God speak into you about how he feels for you. You know, this book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it tells us a story of a real person. And it still instructs us today. It's like Daniel from thousands of years ago is showing us today how to live a godly life in this ungodly age. Daniel wrote not only to share his experiences and God's faithfulness to him in Babylon, but he wrote also to inform us, to encourage us, and to warn us as believers in the end times. You know, as we watch society disintegrate into moral chaos, rampant deception, and lawlessness, and guess what? We actually shouldn't be surprised. Because it actually says it's going to happen in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, if you're starting to freak out and panic and have anxiety attacks and, and just, ah, ah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket with rockets strapped to the side. The word of God for you is be still and know that I am God. Because the Bible tells us that's going to happen. But when we think about what's happening today, the lawlessness and the deception that's being told as truth and the truth that's being touted as lies, then the Old Testament book of Daniel is more relevant today to us than ever before. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 5 verses 15 and 17, it says this, Be careful then, be very careful then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Jump forward one chapter into chapter six, verse 11. It says this, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to what? To stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Again, the apostle Paul writing to the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, be on guard. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. You know, the same Bible, the same problems that existed in the biblical times continue to challenge us today. King Solomon himself said, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> he was right. So we're faced with questions like this, believers. And maybe even non-believers. We're faced with question, questions like this. How can we remain anchored in our Christian faith when the churning rapids of cultural change threaten to carry us away? How do we respond when culture shifts? It's really interesting. Over the recent weeks, you know, Ryan brought a message called The Struggle is Real. You know, then Ian brought a message which was run, you know, run with the power and the presence of God. 
I've then brought a message goes, what then shall we do with Jesus? And then Amber brought her message last week about, um, you know, even if. Even if. I mean, it's just like, I really believe that through all the different speakers that we've had, it's like the Holy Spirit is preparing us to be able to stand in our faith and be real in our faith and be real with each other about our faith. So when this crazy culture of ours just keeps shifting and swirling and, and we, we stand there and the next thing that comes up, we go, seriously, can it get any worse? The answer is yes, it can. And it is going to. So what do we do as believers? What do we do? Do we shift with it? Do we go with the flow? If not, how do we interact meaningfully with the world that seems upside down to everything that we believe in. Well, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his apprentice again the second time. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 14 says this, Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Suzanne spoke of that this morning. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. What is that precious truth? The love, the forgiveness, the grace, the healing and restoration that comes through Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news. From the day that Daniel arrived in Babylon, he stood strong in his faith. His example shines across the centuries, across the eons, and provides us with a clear model of how to live a godly life in today's evil culture. We do actually, I want you to understand this, we do not have to compromise our beliefs or actively participate in an anything-goes culture. I found that um, when I was serving in the military, I, you know, as, a, as a young, passionate Christian, I mean, I, I wanted to share the gospel truth with all of my colleagues, all, all, my, all my fellow servicemen, but I actually found that I couldn't speak what I believed until it actually seen me live what I believed. And I remember at my, um, in the military, it's called a dining in. Uh, when you get a certain rank, you're, you're, you're retiring and you're moving, leaving the force and they put on like a formal dinner for you at the end. They call it a dining in, but you're actually dining out. I don't know. They call it military intelligence. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I had one guy, one guy come up to me. And when you, when you work in that sort of culture, to see people completely sozzled, or at least six out of seven sheets full to the wind, um, it's, you, you kind of get used to it. But I had this one guy come up to me, and uh, through the occasional burp and slur, he, he looked at me and he goes, because at this stage everyone knew I was leaving the forces to become a pastor. He looked at me and he goes, he's trying to gather his thoughts, and he goes, for as long as I've known you, Tom, you've never changed in what you say you believe. And then he steps back and he looks at me and he goes, and now, as a God-botherer, you're now getting the best job a God-botherer can have. <laughs> and then he stopped and looks at me and goes, good on you, bro, and walks off. 
I was in another situation where uh, I was called to, to lead a, um, a big event on base. And uh, uh, sadly, there was a lot of alcohol involved. Um, and uh, another guy come up to me, and he again was six out of seven sheets to the wind. Um, and he comes up, and he steps up, he looks at me, and he goes... And he walks away, and he comes back, and he's... And he walks away, and he's trying to get his... And he, and he eventually comes up, and he goes... You don't belong here. But I'm glad you are. I had to learn that I had to live what I believed before I was given permission to speak what I believe. You know why Daniel was given permission to speak what he believed? Because he lived it. Every day, three times a day, he would go up to his bedroom, open up his windows, and he would pray to God. And people knew it. They saw it. Every time Daniel had to come to the king, he, I think he was, he was a, at least three kings, maybe four, he would come to them with the word of the Lord. Um, and his, like, the, even one of the, the, the furthest out kings, he was a young guy you know, the, where the hand wrote on the wall, and like, David literally pronounced this king's death sentence, and he was promoted. Why? Because he had lived his faith. He was, he was never wavering. He was consistent in living his faith. We do not have to sacrifice or compromise our beliefs or actively participate in an anything goes culture. And guess what? We do not have to sacrifice respectful relationships with others by judging or condemning them. When Daniel came to this king, he knew he was about to pronounce this king's death sentence. And he said to them, oh, king, may you live forever. And I wish this was for your enemies. He showed huge respect to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they showed honor and respect to the king before they defied him. <laughs> But they respected him. Daniel stood firm and he loved everyone around him. And guess what? He was also loved and respected by many. King Darius, when the, when the other philosophers got jealous and they, they forced the king, or they, they manipulated the king to sign that edict that had Daniel thrown into the lion's den, you read the story. That king stayed up all night. He literally fasted and prayed not to God, but to his God, because he was terrified that he had condemned a good man to death in a lion's den. At the rising of the sun, he was the first one outside the lion's den. And this is what he says, Oh, Daniel, did your God save you? Wow. I'm kind of pleased there's no lion's dens these days. <laughs> But it's because Daniel was consistent in how he lived and he was loved by that king. He stood firm and he loved everyone and he was respected and loved by many. Jesus was respected and loved by many. And they stood firm in the cultural shifts of their day, just like we are called to today. It's not easy to balance truth and grace in the midst of such drastic cultural change. Sometimes it seems easier to disengage and try and avoid it altogether? Or is it easier to judge and condemn those who don't agree with us? Or is it just as easy to comply and submit and accept anything and everything? 
you know, how we, we're not called to, to do. That's not what we're called to do or who we're called to be. Bible says this, that we're called to be set apart, but we're also commanded to go. Set apart and go. What does that mean? We set ourselves apart for the teachings of God and we live consistently with the word and the truth of God, but we're called to go into all the world and live that. You know, the Bible says we are, we are, we are in the world, but not of it. But sadly, many people become of the world, but not in it. Avoiding the extremes of bowing down and becoming a doormat or becoming an immovable block of self-righteous granite. Neither of those are right. But how do we do this? Well, it requires humility, compassion, and dependence on God. It's not easy. Our job is to wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, our job is to wholly reflect God, both his righteousness and his graciousness. You know, truth without love is mean. Love without truth is meaningless. Let me say that again. Truth without love is just mean. But love without truth is meaningless. So it's righteousness and graciousness. It's holiness, but also forgiveness and love and mercy. In Zechariah chapter 1, that's in the Old Testament, prophesy Zechariah. Is what it says in chapter, verse 4. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. Man, how, how do we do that? How do we live a, a righteous and gracious life? Well, God gave Zechariah the answer as well in chapter 4, verse 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Who was Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the governor of the Israelites who were held captive in Babylon after the 70 years when they were finally released by King Darius or King Cyrus. I can't remember which one, but he was made governor to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And so basically he was going back into a group of people who had lost their faith, who in actual fact ignored their faith, who worshipped all sorts of foreign gods and everything. He was going back to a place that used to be holy, that was now rampant in sin and darkness, to bring back the word of God. And he was going to have to say to them, turn from your evil ways and stop your evil practices. So how the heck do I do that? Well, the scripture says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Like the prophet Daniel, worship team, would you come please? Just like the prophet Daniel. Here are a number of points. You and I can become catalysts for redemptive change in our time. Our purpose in a shifting world is to be a catalyst for redemptive change. We can be a people who stand graciously firm, who know our goal is not to pursue prominence, but to be a people of influence. Our purpose in a shifting world, we can be people who stand out because of the way we relate, relate to others, especially those who are different from us. Our purpose in a shifting world, we can be people who serve those in need with a willing spirit and gracious generosity. 
our purpose in a shifting world. We can be people who reflect the loving kindness of a good God. And here's your second standpoint for this series. We can be people who stand firm and love well. And you will get part two next week.